church can only sing again, you ain't worthy of it all. sick you can raise your hand hold your hand up anything going on that you need healing for 
the Bible says we call on the elders of the church to anoint them with oil. Does anybody got oil? Someone can run and get the oil. And I want to send some of our elders out. If you just keep your hands up, if you got a sickness, an injury, or if you know somebody, I'm going to need prayer because I know somebody with cancer, and I believe in God for their healing. So keep your hands up. Our elders are going to come to you. They're going to pray for you. And if someone can pray for me on behalf of my loved one, if you got a loved one. One of the names of God in the Bible is Jehovah Rapha, which means God is our healer. God, give us faith this morning to believe what your word says. Some of us are skeptical this morning. Some of us have never seen a healing, or maybe we've seen a what was called a healing, but it was funny. But God, your word says that you are our healer, that we are your people, and you are our God, and, and in that relationship, you are our healer. We come to you. We trust in you. God, give us a heart of faith this morning to take you at your word, that you'd heal us. God Almighty, heal the sick among us. Set, set broken bones into place among us, God. Heal fevers among us, God. Heal lymphoma, heal cancer, heal melanoma. Heal tuberculosis. Whatever affliction this morning, lupus, whatever it is. Jesus is greater than all of it. His blood. Now for those of you who may not need a physical healing, this is a second call. Sister Cynthia, your hand's on fire. You need to go and pray for some people. Come on, girl. Come on, I'm going to call up a second group of folks. The Bible says that in the presence of God and the, is the fullness of joy. His presence is here. We want to pray for emotional healing. Those suffering with depression, regret, any sort of thing. Maybe just a, a, a recurring thought pattern in your mind and it's, and it's got you in bondage. Jesus came to heal our hearts and our minds. If that's you this morning, just ha keep your hands raised. Keep your hands up. Jesus is going to heal you. Jesus can do in one moment what counselors take years and years to, to, to attempt to do. What doctors with all their, all their technology attempt to do. And sometimes it doesn't work. But Jesus is our healer. He's almighty God.
serve an almighty God. We serve an almighty God. Can you give him praise if you're healed this morning? Give him glory. Jesus, we worship you. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy. Tell him he's worthy if you feel this morning. You are worthy. a hard time talking to Jesus right now. Think of three things you're thankful for. Your situation can't be that bad. God has given you an able body and a sound mind. He's placed you in a good church this morning. He's taken care of you to this point. He has marvelous plans for your life. God is good to you this morning. Believe it. been good to you, if he's healed your body and your soul, can you give him an amen, can you give him some praise? 
shout of praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You are worthy. You are worthy. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. You may be seated at this time. I'm sure we could all linger in that for a long time. God is good. He's still here. He's at work in those songs just like he's, he's at work in so many other ways. So we're going to acknowledge God in this moment. My name is Jared Walker. I'm one of the uh, pastoral elders here at MPI. And um, before we move on, I just want to give us an opportunity. If you got kids, 5 to 10, or any kids with you, um, my wife is in the back. Susie, you raise your hand. She is going to escort your children to uh, their Sunday school class, and they got a lot of good stuff for them. Amen? We're going to take a time out, as we always do, to preach the gospel to you. This is the good news about Jesus Christ, about what he's done for us, but furthermore, how we should respond to it. Because I'm assuming that most of you, if not all of you, have already heard the gospel story. You've heard about Jesus uh, from, a, from uh, your youth about how he was born of a virgin, how he lived a sinless life, how he did miracles, he died, and he rose on the third day, he died for our sins. We have holidays that revolve around these events, so a lot of us know. How many know the Jesus story? Amen? The problem then is not hearing, it's responding. It's, it's doing what the gospel has called us to do. I want to break this down for you out of uh, 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15. You can find it in your Bible, also on the screen for your benefit. And it says this. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, whom I am the worst. I'm going to break this down in a few ways. First, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In other words, you could take it to the bank. The content of what's being said here and, and that's the statement that follows it's trustworthy and it deserves your full acceptance in other words you should believe this with all your heart you know some people when they want to uh, solidify what they're saying they say I swear on my mama grave I don't recommend that but if you can swear on your mama grave about anything you can you could do it for this because this is trustworthy 100% of the time and it deserves our full acceptance and we need to believe this with all our heart. Not just say it with our mouths, but believe it with all our heart. And it goes on to say, this is what deserves our full acceptance. This is the trustworthy saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world, but he came from heaven. He's the son of God. He is in his very nature and essence God. The Bible says he was with God and is God. And he came to earth and took on a human likeness. He lived like us. He lived among us. And he gave his life for us. We've heard the story. He died on the cross for our sins. We rejected him, but God the Father planned it so he could pay the penalty that you deserve and I deserve for our evil deeds. And it was to save sinners. How many sinners we got in the room? Well, now, now there's, there's a differentiation. Jesus makes sinners into saints, amen? But listen, until you're a saint, you're still a sinner. And there's no big sinners and small sinners. Think about this. Did Jesus die for the sins of the whole world, including your sins? Or did he just die for the dictators and the murderers and the rapists? Because Paul, who wrote this, he said, I'm the worst of sinners. 
he had a lot that he could boast in and say he was a good man, he was a religious man, he was a spiritual man, but when he searched his heart, he knew deep down, I'm a sinner. He says in the verses that proceed, I was a blasphemer, I was violent, I was ignorant of God. But a lot of us think the opposite of ourselves. We don't think we're the worst, but we compare ourselves to the worst. I'm not as bad as such and such. I'm not the drug addict down the street. I'm not selling dope. I'm not selling my body. I'm not that bad. And we have this self-righteousness as if Jesus didn't have to die for your sins. As if you don't have to be saved from your sins because you sin too. But he came to save sinners. Sinners have big bank accounts, small bank accounts. Sinners come in all shapes and sizes. But he came to save us from our sin and came to give us a right standing with God. We need to respond to the gospel this morning. Recognize ourselves as the worst of sinners. If we could all stand up. Here's the application of it. You've heard the Jesus story. And if you're still a sinner today, Jesus has not made you a saint. Jesus has not cleansed you of your sin. You need to accept that. You need to acknowledge your sin before God. God, I'm messed up. I've done a lot of stuff I regret. If you think back, I don't care who you are today, how good you look this morning. You know you've done some stuff. You wouldn't tell anybody in this room. Thoughts, some thoughts. Even today, you wouldn't tell anybody. Maybe did something last night. We're all sinners in our nature without God. And we need Christ's salvation. As um, one singer said, this blood's for you. Like the beer commercial, this blood's for you. But this blood is for you. Jesus' blood was shed for you. So let's respond to the gospel. Berto and Griselda, if you could raise your hands. They'll pray with you. They'll pray with you over there. Those are pastors. Those are men, uh, men and women of integrity. They'll pray with you to get that sin out of your life, to become a saint of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray, Lord, that the work of Jesus would be done this morning. He came to save sinners. That was his mission here on earth. That was, that was what he eats and sleeps and breathes. When he was on that cross, that's what he thought about, saving sinners, even people in this room. Lord, you thought of me on that cross. You died for my evil deeds on that cross, just like everybody else. And God, if I can be changed, anybody can be changed. You've saved some really rotten sinners in the past, God. And, and you could save anybody in this room, I know it. But Father, I pray that people see their need for it. And that you, Lord, will save them wonderfully, God. I pray for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's um, quickly recite our confession of faith. This is what we believe as a church. And um, if you believe in Jesus, this is what you believe. Amen. So let's let's do this together on the count of three. And uh, if you need handouts, we have ushers. You can raise your hand. They'll give it to you and you can take it home. But for now, it's on the screen. It says this. I believe. Let's do this. One, two, three. I believe in one God and creator who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father who so loved the world. The Son who purchased my salvation in his death burial and resurrection and the Holy Spirit who makes me new and abides in me forever I believe in the perfect holy Bible that reveals God's purposes and plans for my life I believe in the second coming of Jesus who will judge the living and the dead I believe in the eternal reward of believers in Jesus and the eternal punishment for all unbelievers in Jesus 
I believe in the United Church of Jesus Christ, built upon apostles and prophets, elders and deacons, in which the gates of hell shall not prevail. I believe in the salvation for all mankind. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and for the glory of God alone. Amen. We're going to fellowship. If you want to get right and save from your sin, Berto and Grisada are right there. Tell somebody you love them this morning. and love from each other. Welcome, welcome to Metro Praise International Church. My name is Nancy Wyrostek. I'm one of the apostolic elders here. And we want to say thank you for joining us for this time of worship and the word this morning. Why don't you look to your neighbor and say, I'm so glad you came this morning. It's good to see everybody here, all full of life and energy. Our Sunday uh, services start at 10 a.m. We have two main services, Sundays at 10 Fridays is for the teenagers, 11 to 18. Can I get some noise? Elevate. They meet every Friday at 7 o'clock. If you know teenagers in your life, make sure they are here. It is a blessed place to be. Can I get an amen? amen? Best place to be for teenagers. Our vision here is very simple at Metro Praise. We want to love God and love people. Look to your neighbor and say, love God. And look to your other neighbor and say, love people. 
We want, we strive to do that with all of our heart. It is the two greatest commandments Jesus said that we could follow is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that is what we want to do here for the whole city of Chicago and all across the nations. Amen. Our discipleship strategy are three very easy steps. It's connect, mentor, and send. We want to connect you to the cross. We want to mentor you with the cross, and we want to send you out with the cross. And the way we want to connect you to the cross is through our weekly life groups. Somebody say life groups. We get life at life groups. Life groups is, is a place where you guys can get together and share life. Everybody say share life. Who wants to share life with somebody in this room other than your spouse? Come on. There is a life group made just for you. These are all of the options that we have. We have ministry-based, class-based, special needs-based, and activity-based. There is no place in this church, no time of the week, no time of day where you can feel bored, where you can feel disconnected, or not a part of this family. You can pick any type of life group to be a part of, whether you're a single mom, whether you're a teenager, a married couple, you're a party-hardy person like the Lopez's and you want to go bowling with them, you pick one, talk to the leaders after service, and if you don't know who they are, just ask around. Say, how can I get involved in the Single Moms Life Group? And if you need more information on this, please visit our website. We actually have a new website, mpichurch.org. Check it out. Lots of information coming your way there. Very fun, interactive place to check out some more information. Somebody say connect. Our second phase of discipleship is the mentorship. And we take that very seriously here at Metro Praise because we desire for everybody who professes a relationship with Jesus to be discipled. Say discipled. And this is our 101 book. It's, it's called Welcome to Your New Life, Seven Steps to Spiritual Growth. And it's our way for you to grow in the Lord, seven basic steps to grow in your Christianity, meet with our leaders who want to pour their life into you. Do I have any leaders in here that want to pour themselves out to somebody? Come on. And once you finish this, however long this may take you, we have the 201. And the 201 book is taught in a classroom setting on Sunday mornings with Jared Walker, who just presented the gospel to you. And this book is called Disciples That Make Disciples. And we teach you the deep truths of the gospel, how to defend the faith, uh, how to live free, live an anointed life for the Lord. And we want to give you all the tools, all the knowledge that we can possibly give to you to live a successful life for Jesus. We take mentorship seriously and we want to send you out to go evangelize. And our goal here at Metro Praise is to have 100,000 disciples in Chicago with 50 churches here in this city and 500 around the world. If you believe we can do that together as the body of Christ, say amen. Hallelujah. I believe we can do it. We have been doing it. And every single one of you here is a testimony to how we can evangelize, spread the gospel, connect you to discipleship, and it works. Somebody look at your neighbor and say, it works. Discipleship works. Amen. As we prepare to give our tithes and offerings, can you please turn with me to Matthew 6, 31. We're going to read 31 through 33. And as you prepare to give, as we all prepare to give our tithes and offerings, I want to just take a moment here and teach you from the scriptures how powerful it is for us to obey the principle of tithing. How many of you guys know what a tithe would be off of a $1,000 check? If you receive $1,000 for work, what is 10%? $100, okay? So if a teenager, if your parents give you 10 bucks for the week 
how much should you tithe off of that faithfully? One dollar, okay? So 10% off of $10 and was one dollar. And the principle that I want to share with you this morning is all of it belongs to the Lord. All 100% of what we have, the reason why we have it is because we serve a good God. And he asks for 10%. And I'll tell you this right now. I have been tithing since I was 18 years old. I got saved. I rededicated my life in 18, at 18, and I am 31 this May. And I have always tithed off of everything that has come through my hands. My husband and I can share with you testimonies and stories of God's faithfulness. And I'm telling you this morning that you will have more with 90% than you will ever be able to have with 100%. You will be able to provide for your family, get increase on your job, have extra off of the 90 than you will with 100. Why? Let's read Matthew 6, 31. If you are there, please say, I am there. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. See, when we put his kingdom first, everything else we need follows. But when we put our small little kingdom, our four, no more first, I'm telling you it will never be enough. Let's be faithful with our tithe. Let's be faithful to giving to missions so that we can continue to give out these materials to India and Pakistan and nations across the world. Let's give beyond our tithe. That is between you and the Lord to provide uh, avenues and ways for the gospel to be preached to the whole world so that nations can be discipled. And it's because we are able to put him first and think about ourselves second that God makes that 90% feel like so much more. Somebody say overflow. If you could stand up to your feet with me as we prepare to give. We have online giving to make it more convenient for you. If that is easier for you to do, we have many options. Again, all that information is on the website. Please feel free to check it out and see what uh, option would work best for you and your family. We're going to read this out loud together on the count of three after I say Luke 638. One, two, three. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Jesus. We just thank you so much for this time. We thank you that we could come into your presence with confidence and boldness to make a request. And we just thank you, God, for all the faithful tithers and givers in this church. I pray that you prosper them, that you bring increase on their job, that as they are faithful to you, you will remain faithful to them. And all that comes in, God, will be used to the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Come forward as you give. Man, how many love Jesus? Can I get an amen? amen. 
Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 5. I'm so glad that you're here. Would you leave that screen up for me there, uh, Professor? I want to tell you we're going through an entire series right now on Proverbs. Everybody say Proverbs. Thank you. And during this series, every week, we're giving you a different proverb here on Sunday, okay? And uh, Proverbs means a bit of wisdom, a nugget of wisdom, sayings of wisdom. It's all about wisdom. And every day of this month, we're doing lifechangingdevotions.com. You can receive a proverb with a devotional right to your email. Okay, so this is pretty awesome right here. Somebody say, awesome. Okay, so this is awesome. Okay, so every week you come here, you hear us preaching on a sermon. Uh, on a proverb, and then every day, the thug dizzle for the loaf of shizzle, you can get in your email a proverb. So proverbs galore, because a proverb a day will keep foolishness away. So I just want you guys to get, like, immersed in this this month, just eating the proverbs, just meditating on them, receiving from them like you would bread, and taking them and putting them into your life. This has been a passion of mine ever since I first got saved. As a matter of fact, when I first got saved, the book that I went through verse by verse was Proverbs. And literally, I brought out my devotional, and I just started writing down what each proverb meant to me. And uh, about six months ago, I was contemplating writing another book. I've already wrote five books by God's grace. Then I wrote a sixth and a seventh book. And, and these two, uh, discipleship book, I wrote one for pastors. And then this book came into my mind. And the reason I wanted to do a devotional was because I wanted to make Proverbs something that somebody can meditate on every day of the week. So I started off with the mindset, can I give a whole entire year of Proverbs? This was the mindset. And it didn't, uh, I, I, I couldn't get 365 out of it. I mean, they're pretty awesome, but I just couldn't do that. So then I said to myself, what if I give uh, every month a different subject? Brother, would you just go there real quick, lifechangingdevotions.com? And uh, the sixth book, well, they both got written at the same time, but this one's not uh, finished. So technically the sixth book is uh, discipleshipchurches.com. If you want to check it out, we're going to get it published. It's going to be awesome. But look at this, lifechangingdevotions.com. And then go to the 30-day series. I wanted to be able to give the church something to do every day to meditate on God. How many know what devotionals are? Okay, so I wanted to give you guys something to do. I wanted to do it with Proverbs. Couldn't come up with 365. So I came up with different sections, right? Now, check this out. These sections have already been done. So here it is, lifechangingdevotions.com. You can sign up by email or by Facebook. But I want you to see something unique about this, this 30-day series. Would you just scroll up here for me? I gave you right here the opportunity to go back over the months I've already done at any time you want to take on a 30-day series. So you know you guys have heard like 40 days of purpose, 30 days of getting in shape, P90X, all that. You guys familiar with that? Okay, so this is 30 days to change in your life. You could pick any of the series that I've already wrote. We've already done January, February, March. Okay, so we've done three months. Here's January's, the God kind of life. You could take this on at any time, and then every day of the week, you could read one of these uh, lessons, and they would change your life. Are you guys tracking with me? Okay, now keep going. February, if you wanted to pick another month, the promises of God. So you could say, man, I'm, I'm discouraged right now. I'm going through some stuff. You could say, you know what? For the next 30 days, I'm going to take on promises of God every single day until I got promises coming out my ears. 
You could do that, or you could stay depressed. It's up to you which one you want to do, okay? Now, the next one, go to March, okay? And this is building towards my, my message today. March, the heart of worship in the life of prayer. So for some of you who might be like, man, I don't feel close to God, or, you know, I want to learn how to pray better. I want to learn how to, uh, you know, be more intimate with God in worship. You could start right now, and then for the next 30 days, bam, you could learn how to do the thug dizzle right here. Now, let me just show you how awesome this is when it comes to prayer. Lord, teach us to pray is the first lesson. Then I give you the five parts of the Lord's prayer about hallowed be your name, a kingdom come, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not to temptation. Then starting in day seven, just scroll this up there for me, please. I give you all, I believe it's nine different kinds of prayer. It's not just one kind of prayer, nine different kinds of prayer. The prayer request, the prayer of repentance, intercession, so forth and so on. Then keep scrolling, baby. You ain't even through halfway through the month, right? And then look right here, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And then from day 20 on, just scroll up a little bit more for you, please, Will you please. I give you all the Hebrew words for praise and worship unto God. Yada, Tehillah, Barak, Halel, Toda, Zamar, Shabak. This is for you. Why am I showing you this? Because Proverbs, though I couldn't write an entire devotional on it, gave me the love of wisdom, gave me the love of insight. And so I wrote an entire year devotional for you that if you are hungry for wisdom and knowledge in these different areas at any time, you can just take it out and have 30 days of a, like, filet mignon out of cheddar, whatever you like, sausage, pizza. You can every single day. Now check out what's going on right here in April. Come on. This is right here, the Proverbs that I've already gone through. Better Proverbs, better than fortune cookies. Fear of the Lord. Don't follow cinders. Wisdom will save you. Trust the Lord. Don't be stingy. Wisdom is supreme. Keep on going up, going up. And I'm going to put today's on there when I get done preaching right here. But, uh, oh, no, that is today's. Is it not Wednesday, the 14th? Man, I already did that. I forgot I did it. Man, Pastor, busy. Got up early this morning. This is an early morning for me. Day 14. It's already there. If you had your email, does anybody have email? Does anybody have a computer? Anybody have one of those? You would have already received this. The blessing of wealth. The entire month. I want to encourage you to do this. My heart for devotionals came from Proverbs itself. Now you have these devotionals anytime, anywhere. Families can do them together. Children with their parents can do it together so that you may fall more in love with Jesus, be successful in all you do. Can I hear an amen? Okay, open up with me now to Proverbs chapter 27, 5 through 6. Today's message is open rebukes and trusted wounds. Open rebukes and trusted wounds. Proverbs chapter 27, 5 through 6. By the way, the notes are up there already for you on the website as well. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Somebody say open rebukes and trusted wounds. Amen. I want to talk to you today with what I think is one of the most defining attributes of discipleship. 
wisdom and discipleship go hand in hand. If you remember, we talked about last week the benefits of the fear of the Lord. One of them is wisdom and one of them is discipline. The root word of disciple comes from the word discipline. When you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a disciplined follower of Jesus. That means you're doing what he commanded you to do. Just if I, if I said I was a disciple of Mr. Miyagi, I would have to be disciplined, you know, to learn that kick. Anybody remember that kick right here? You know, I wax on, wax off. Right, you got to be disciplined to be with Mr. Miyagi. You just don't show up to Mr. Miyagi doing whatever you want to do. You know what I'm saying? You anybody remember that? The karate kid he didn't just show up and do whatever he wanted to do. He had to do what Mr. Miyagi wanted him to do, and that's how he got to become the karate kid. And when they fought and they got into fights, who were they fighting with? Cobra Kai. You see, Cobra Kai were foolish. They were fools. They they didn't have wisdom. They just loved to fight. You know what I'm saying? But Mr. Miyagi taught him patience. He taught him all those different things so that he could fight, but he had wisdom in his fight. Everybody say, oh, snap. Now, what we're talking about today is going to make you a better disciple of Jesus. Think of it like this. If you're following the analogy of the karate kid, today is going to teach you how to wax on, wax off. This may not be the kind of message you're going to want to shout about and get all excited about and tweet your friends about, but it's going to be a message that you have to understand to be successful in the body of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ, you're going to have to love open rebukes. You're going to have to love you some rebukes. And, and, and a lot of churches don't know how to do rebukes. They're just, they're just no amateurs at it. We are pros at rebuking here. We are pros at it. We are practice, tried, and true, baby. Should have a shirt, you know, 2005, 13 years of giving rebukes. Uh, excuse me, I don't have to do math. Forgive me. Eight years, 2013 minus. Uh, eight years of rebukes, you know, established, 2005, eight years of rebukes. And we keep going. We are like pros at rebukes. I remember hanging out with one of my friends, and they were like, man, I ain't never heard the word rebuke used as much as I've heard it with you. And I'm like, man, that's a rebuke right there. I should rebuke you for not rebuking. What's why you know you should know about rebukes. How do you not know about rebukes? And you read here in this proverb, you know, this beautiful wisdom here from King Solomon. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. So you could say, like, you know, like our slogan, like Metro Praise, we love you so much, we rebuke you. That's how much we love you here. We rebuke you. We ain't gonna let you hide in your sin. We're not going to let you, like, think it's all right. You know what I'm saying? There's a lot of places you can go and feel all right. They won't get in your business, okay? There's a lot of places that are like that, and you can hide in the crowd, and, and maybe a speaker will come up and whisper sweet nothings in your ears and, and tickle you and make all your spiritual fantasies come true. I mean, you know, there may be spiritual fantasies that you just, you just want to see happen in life, and there's a pastor out there that, that will be your guide, the plane, the plane. He will put you on Fantasy Island. He will, I'm just going too far with that example, but follow me. He, he will be your Jacques Cousteau and take you on deep spiritual journeys. There, there's churches that will do that. They'll talk to you about the seraphim, the cherubim. They'll take you on those places. While the entire time your character is still messed up. The entire time your family's messed up. The entire time that the community you and I live in don't see a difference. 
they see us no different than the guys who go play Star Trek or role play, you know, uh, those people who have role playing, you know, fantasies. They're, they're thinking, you know, you're just playing a fantasy here. It's not real life. Are you guys listening to me? If what God is doing in you can't be seen by the people around you, then it's not really genuine. Sometimes people think, you know, like, I'm so spiritual, I'm so spiritual. It doesn't matter if anybody doesn't see it. I'm so spiritual. No, if nobody sees your spirituality, your spirituality is a farce. It's make-believe. Your spirituality, the Bible says, should come out through your deeds of humility. And we've preached on this here, faith and works going together. I want to give you the definitions of these, these main four components of this proverb. Matter of fact, it's two of them, but I consider them as one. Open rebuke, hidden love, wounds from a friend, and kisses of an enemy. Listen as I read the scripture again, and I'll give you the definitions. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Okay, so what's an open rebuke? A frank and direct word of honest criticism or disapproval. So the Bible is saying it is better that somebody gives you an open, honest criticism, a disapproval, than to do the other thing, and that is to hide their love. Now, what is hidden love? Hidden love is a love that is too timid. Everybody say timid. Thank you. Or too afraid or not trusting enough to admit that reproof is a part of genuine love. Think about it. Hidden love is timid, it's afraid, and it's not trusting enough. Because someone thinks if I say this to so-and-so, I won't be their friend anymore. So they don't say it to so-and-so. Oh, if I tell my neighbor what the Bible says about that, we may not be able to share barbecues together. Or if I say this to this person, they may get offended. And so we, we, we allow our timidity, our fear, uh, our fear of man and what they think about us to not tell them the truth because we know that the truth is there. Now think about this when we're still talking about hidden love. A love that manifests no rebuke is morally useless. A love that gives no moral rebuke is useless. If you're not in a friendship, a marriage, a relationship with your children, a true de definition of love being manifested in one of those ways, if you're not in, an, in a relationship with your parents, your children, your wife, your friends, and you are not able in that relationship to share a moral disapproval or a moral criticism, you're not really showing love. And your love is useless. Think about this. There's people today that are sinning, and they have friends with them as they're sinning. Let's take, for example, somebody living together that's not married, right? Now, they may both call themselves Christians, right? Just like I call myself a millionaire. Does that make me a millionaire? I said it with my words. That must mean it's true, right? No, incorrect. Just saying things with your words does not mean it's true. I could say I'm slim and beautiful and handsome. What does that mean? Nothing, right? means nothing. I'm a Christian. You know, I'm a this, I'm a this. I believe I'm an eagle and I can fly, right? Well, it doesn't matter. Well, I saw my mom, I saw my aunt, you know, uh, you know, do all of this. It doesn't matter if your aunt, your mom, your dad, and all of them did the wrong thing. If you do the wrong thing, it's still wrong for you. Okay, so think about this. There are some people that are friends, maybe two ladies, two guys. They're friends, 
And both of them are living in adultery. Let's just take that for example. Because they don't tell each other what, you know, what they're doing is wrong, their love for each other is actually useless. Useless. Because if we believe the Bible, these people's souls are going to go to hell forever. So it didn't matter if they went and shared a movie together, the G.I. Joe movie, whatever else is out there, or if they went ice skating downtown in the winter, or if they're going rollerblading today downtown. You know, all these things friends do together. Does it really matter if they've done all of those things and eternally they go to hell? Were they really good friends to each other? No, because they were bad friends to each other. They allowed each other to both be deceived by their sin and go to hell. Now let's uh, take for another example. Let's say there's two men. They both work on the job, and uh, one curses all the time and tells dirty jokes. And, uh, you know, the one guy, he says to himself, you know, who doesn't tell the dirty jokes, he goes, you know, if I confront my friend and tell him that these things are dirty and they offend me, then he may laugh at me. He may then crack jokes about me, you know, if I tell him, you know, I don't want to hear that. By him not telling his friend that dirty jokes are offensive to God and offensive to himself, he's not really being a good friend. Now, he may go out with his friend. He may help his friend move. Let's say his friend needs to move on a Saturday. He may go out there and help him move. He may babysit his kids. But if he's not honestly criticizing in a good way, telling him he disapproves of his behavior, they may watch Cubs games together, but they ain't really friends. Because the biblical definition of a friend, this may be good to bring up as well, I don't have it in the notes. A biblical definition of a friend is to do unto others as you would want done unto you. That, that's true love. So if like I was going to hell and you knew that I was going to hell, if you're my friend, I would want you to tell me that I'm going to hell. Are you all tracking with me? And if you're going to hell or even if you're sinning against God, it would be good for me to tell you. So what is an open rebuke? It's an honest criticism or disapproval. What is the opposite of that hidden love? It's a love that is not morally useful in any way. And in fact, one should question whether it's even sincere or not. So if somebody says, I love you, but they're not willing to help you, is that really even being sincere? Now, the next thing that we learn is that wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. What are wounds from a friend? It's the reproof that's given in love because it's superior to insincere affections. I'm not talking about wounds that are done out of jealousy. You know when friends fight and they get jealous or they talk about each other or maybe a friend, you know, literally, literally beats up the other person. That's not what it's talking about. In the context here, what it's saying is if in the midst of me rebuking my friend, they get hurt, their feelings get hurt, they feel, everybody say they feel, they feel bad, they feel wounded. It's better to have done that to my friend than to kiss them and really not care for their soul. Some of y'all need to get that because too many of you break away from churches, break away from friends because they hurt your feelings when they're trying to be a good friend. 
Now, let me just say here, if they hurt your feelings because they gossip, they hurt your feelings because they call you names, if they hurt your feelings because they curse you out, all of those things you have the right to be hurt from, they're not acting as your friend. So I just want to say that because I don't want anybody to say, oh, well, pastor's saying, you know, my friends are just supposed to hurt me and we're supposed to take it. No, I'm not saying all hurt by your friends is good. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is when you have a true friend that can point to the Bible and show you something that you're doing is wrong and they morally disapprove of it and they go, shame, shame. You shouldn't be talking like that. Shame, shame. You shouldn't be sleeping with somebody you're not married to. Shame, shame. You should not be doing that. Even if you get your feelings hurt, it's better to have a friend like that than to have somebody who kisses you and makes you feel good, and yet they are your enemy because they don't care about your soul. What? Worse of an enemy could you have than somebody who could help you but never does? Think about that. We have enemies now in Afghanistan, you know, and possibly with Iran and North Korea. But do they really have anything to help us with? Have they solved the... uh, you know, ha- have they uh, solved cancer, the, you know, medically? Do they have a cure for cancer, cure for AIDS? Do they, do they have, uh, you know, some great wisdom to rid us of urban violence? No. They really can't do anything to help us. Now, we disagree upon how the world should be run, you know. North Korea is a communist country, so they think the world should be run by a few aristocrat dictators, leadership, controlling the economy and everything in the world. So if he had his way, he would control the world as a dictator. Muslims, very similar. Islam wants to control the world through their Quran and what is called the Hadith, the teachings of the prophets. So, you know, uh, Muhammad wrote the Quran like scriptures. Then the Hadith is kind of like his biography, like how it should be done. You know, how do you live it out? Well, that's called Sharia law. So in their mind, they want to put communism in the world or they want to put in Islam. That defines them as our enemy here in America because we say, no, we believe in capitalism, free market. Uh, Jobs are based upon what free businessmen do, hiring and firing. We believe in that. We believe that leaders should be voted in by the people for the people. And then we don't believe that one religion should be able to dictate the the moral code for people's lives. Are you tracking with me? I'm just using an example of what an enemy is. Now, if... Someone like Ahmadinejad, uh, the, the president of Iran, or, or you know, Kim Jong-il's son from North Korea, came and said to you, like he did with Dennis Rodman, I love you, I love you, and kissed you, and kissed you, and did all of these nice things to you. But then in his mind, he is saying to himself, I'm just kissing you to deceive you, but I really want to destroy you. I'm just playing sheep right now, but I'm really a wolf, right? That's a terrible thing to do. That is like a hypocrite because he's pretending to be one thing, but he's doing another thing. Are you all tracking with me here? Okay, that's that's an enemy that that, uh, is being deceiving. That's not the worst kind of enemy. Because that kind of enemy, as they would say, would stab you in the chest. They would tell you, honestly, at the end of the day, this is what I'm about. I am about Islam. I am about communism. But I think a far worse kind of enemy 
and I don't want to get political now, so I won't name a nation that's behaving like this, but I think there is a nation treating America like this, that they're pretending to be our friend, but they're really not, and they're a big nation. I think we're in debt to them a whole lot. But I'm not going to name that nation and go there right now. But I do think there's a little of this example, but I'm not going to go there. But the worst kind of enemy would be somebody, pretend now, you're dying of AIDS, and they have the cure. Not only can they do something nice to you, they can change your entire life. They can change the entire way that you interact in life. They can give you something so beneficial, but they don't. They keep it to themselves. They know they have the cure. Now imagine, and they come and visit you, and as you're losing weight and as you're dying, you know, and you're getting skinnier and skinnier, they just give you a kiss and say, I hope you get better. See, I think that person has a much more wicked heart because they know that they can do something to change the situation. See, Korea knows they're not going to change us. The Muslims know they're not going to change us. So they're kind of an enemy just coming right at us, and they're trying to take us over. But the enemy of a bad friend says, I'm here to help you. And they sincerely mean it in their own heart. They really think they love you, and they care about you. And yet if they're a Christian, and they don't tell you the wrongs that you're doing and they know that it's wrong they know that it could change your whole perspective because they read like say Galatians 5 that said if you sleep with a person you're not married to you will not inherit the kingdom of God neither were a drunkard neither will those who have outbursts of anger and they understand your eternal soul is in jeopardy by what you're doing how are you doing good to see you Sunday morning and they, they just give you kisses. They are an enemy. Why did I take this time to explain this to you? Because I believe, like Isaiah said, we live, Isaiah chapter 5, we live in a time where people call good evil, and they call evil good. See, we live in a time that when preachers like me preach about rebukes, preach about sins, we have empty chairs, we're told we're not good enough pastors, and then the pastors that keep telling you you're awesome, you're great, here's a little remodel of your life, just paint up a little bit of this in your life, change a little bit of this, you'll be okay. We applaud those pastors, put them on magazines, and we say that's what it's like to be a pastor, when really if those pastors, Jeremiah chapter 23, are not telling you you're in sin telling you about your eternal soul and they're kissing your hand as you're dropping money in their buckets they're your enemy they're not your friend and if somebody you go to church with or you know at your job and, and, and they know what the Bible says and they won't tell you what the Bible says they are an enemy oh pastor I don't know if I agree with that think about Judas Mark chapter 14, we don't have to turn there. Mark chapter 14, verse 45. When Judas went up to Jesus, what was he doing when he kissed him? Betraying him. Betraying him. Judas sold out Jesus. Now, we know that this worked out for good because of Jesus going to the cross, we have salvation, right? But if we do this to our friends with their eternal souls, the Bible says we will be responsible for them. I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Don't take my word for it. Look at the Bible. 
Ezekiel chapter 33. I want you to see it quickly. What the Bible says you and I are responsible for. Because before I ever tell you what it means for us as a church to give rebuke, I want you to understand you are also responsible for this as well. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33 and start in verse 9. We'll say start in verse 8. Please put up there, Ezekiel 33, verse 8. If you're in church this morning, can I hear you say amen? So I make sure you're paying attention. Thank you. It says, God speaking to his prophet Ezekiel, he said, When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways, that wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold, somebody say, I will hold you. I will hold who? I will hold you accountable for their blood. This is serious, is it not? I'm going to I'm I'm step on some toes, but I do it out of love. Listen to me, because I love people here. If you are the kind of parent that does not tell your children about righteousness and wickedness, you are not a good parent, according to this book. The world may look at you and say, look at all the good things you've bought for your kids. Look at how you've provided college for them. Look at the clothes you've bought them. Oh, you're so wonderful. Oprah Winfrey may give you an award. But if you have not warned your children and taught them, if you live wickedly, Bethany, if you live wickedly, Hannah, you will perish. The blood of their souls will be on your hand. Verse 9. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though yourself will be saved. Now, immediately, we get to a place when we hear this about us telling people about their sin, we instantly now say to ourselves, but nobody's perfect. So who am I to tell another person they're in sin, right? This is like the first reaction we get because now we feel like there's going to be the judging police going around the church, checking the woman's skirt, seeing how much makeup they put on, checking the guys and see what they, you know, spent their money on this week, how much time they spent watching football. It's like all, uh, you know, baseball, whatever. We feel like now there's going to be some type of a judger walking around and then the moment somebody tries to be that judger the the reaction we're going to get is dude don't judge me dude come on you're not perfect man look at yourself you can't judge me but you see my dad found a great scripture in John John talks about that these words that Jesus speaks are the words that judge you that we should be open to what Jesus said because those are the words that judge us. Somebody say judging is not wrong if it comes from God's word. Let me share it with you here quickly. Turn with me in, in, in the Bible to John chapter 12, verse 47. Look at John chapter 12, verse 47. If you're there, can you say I'm there? If anyone hears my what? My words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. 
There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I spoken will condemn them at the last day. Boom. Come on, somebody. Jesus don't even have to judge you. People say, you know, how could God send us to hell? How could a loving God send us to hell? No, you send yourself to hell. You and I, if we end up in hell, it's because we sent ourselves to hell. It is his word that judges us. And so based on that, you stand accountable, sir. You stand accountable, ma'am. What do you do with Jesus' words? Now let's go back to the judging police. Did Jesus talk about what clothes women should wear? No, see, radical churches back in the day used to tell women what clothes to wear. But is there a church uh, that can prove to us in the Bible where it says, you know, women wear this kind of outfit and not this kind of outfit? No, so those words aren't going to judge me, right? Are you guys tracking with me? Is there a place in the Bible that says uh, that men... Uh, can't watch, you know, sports, can't, uh, you know, watch the Cubs or whatever else is going on. Is, is there a verse in the Bible that says don't watch sports? Uh, but maybe some of you don't know this, but the history of, uh, of being radical in Christianity, like Pentecostalism, uh, you know, for the first 50 years, they said going to sports, watching sports was actually sin. Some of you might have grown up in a church like that. Uh, now let me give you another one. Is there a scripture in the Bible that says you can't play cards? You can't play, uh, you know, rummy or, or poker or whatever. You like to play with cards, right? Now gambling's a different issue, but we're not going to talk about it. I'm just saying playing cards. No sin, uh, no sin in the Bible I can think of that says don't play cards. But yet there were people that would say don't play cards. Are you guys tracking with me? But those don't come from God's word. Now how about this? Is there a place in the Bible that talks about homosexuality being a sin. Is there a place in the Bible that talks about homosexuality being a sin? Who can name one? Just, just shout it out. Just to make sure the preacher's not lying and making it up. Maybe I did some hypnotism here and had you guys, yes, there is. I mean, come on. Romans chapter 1. Thank you, sir. Romans chapter 1 is clear that when people live like this, they forsake natural relations. The word is used natural. When they forsake natural relations and have intimacy with each other, this is sin. And it's actually a sign of God's judgment upon a culture that has rejected in their mentality the commands of God. So if we keep breaking commands like lying, we keep stealing, we keep doing these things, eventually we'll become so gross and perverted that we'll forsake natural relationships and we'll start affirming same-sex relationships. So though homosexuality is like any other sin that can be forgiven and God can change, it is unique as a sin because it marks a sign of judgment, a depraved mind upon a culture. So when you see a culture going hip, hip, hooray for homosexuality, it is doing that because homosexuality is the little star on top of the Christmas tree of sin, as it were. Are you listening to me? So all of the other sin is around the tree, the lies and all of this, but there is a unique relationship with this kind of sin, according to Romans 1. I'm just talking about the Bible. Is that okay? Just Romans 1. There's a unique relationship there with homosexuality. Now, let's go on. Uh, does the Bible say that murdering, taking an innocent life, is sin? I mean, if I was to walk up to Tina and kill her right now, and, and I don't mean to be gross, but, I, but this example will make sense in just a few minutes. If I was to take a saw and cut off her arms, 
cut off her legs, and then suck out her intestines with a vacuum cleaner. Would we all understand that is murder? Right now, we do that 3,500 times a day in America through abortion. Infanticide, killing our own children. Pictures have shown this. Doctors have confessed it. We know this is what happens. Now, do we have a right to say homosexuality is sin? Do we have a right to say murder is sin? How about sex outside of marriage? Is that sin? How, how, how about disobeying your parents? Is that a sin? How about taking the name of the Lord in vain? Is that a sin? What about coveting after somebody else's goods? Is that a sin? Okay, so now we begin to understand that the Bible is actually quite clear on what is sin. So this idea that nobody is perfect and now we just wash it all away and we all just live how we want is nonsense. We are expected to live by the commands of God. Now let me just help just reinforce this a little bit. Uh, how many would think this would possibly happen in America, okay? So I drive from Elgin to here down the highway, and uh, the policemen are just sitting out there Sunday morning. They're just waiting to give tickets, man, on I-90 out there, and they're just, they got them pulled over all over the place, okay? Now imagine a police officer pulls me over, and uh, he says, do you know why I pulled you over? And I go, yeah, I was speeding. And he goes, yeah, how fast were you going? I was going 85. Oh, yeah, what was the speed limit, sir? 55. So I acknowledge it, right? So I go, I was going 85 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. And he goes, uh, okay, that's great. So I'm going to give you a ticket. And I go, oh, but nobody's perfect. <laughs> nobody's perfect. See, you didn't think I was going to pull that out, Mr. Cop, but policeman. But I, I got you on that one. And if that don't work, don't judge me. Don't judge me lest you be judged because you know what? You're going to get judged too, and there's a judge over here somewhere. And don't judge me. Now, let me ask you a question. In our society with rules and laws where we do have actual judges and enforcer of those laws, the policemen, do you think that this argument would compel that police officer to think differently of me as a lawbreaker? Would the police officer think differently about me as a lawbreaker if I told him, Nobody is perfect. No, because he expects me to keep the law. There's an understanding in our society that you can keep laws. And, and, and if you would say, I don't know how to keep a law, they would say, let me take your license from you. Let me put you in a padded wagon, and you'll go down there, okay? You'll play with your little car, you know, you're driving. Because if you say, I don't comprehend that law, I, I, I don't have the mental ability to keep the law, I, ah, I'm just going to drive crazy. They're going to say, you don't have the ability to drive. So, so part of me getting a license, the understanding is you can keep a law. Let me ask you a question. When Jesus gave you laws... Do you believe he gave it with the intent that you could keep the laws? So by saying nobody is perfect, we're not talking the way Jesus wants us to talk. We're actually talking like spoiled little brats. Well, mommy, I don't have to clean my room because, mommy, you're not perfect. How many know that's not going to stop mommy from giving that baby a spanking? Pew. I'm good at this, ain't I? I'm perfect at this. I'll show you perfection, the perfect spank. We know in our mind that this doesn't work if we see it in a child and if we would see it in society. Yet, turn with me quickly, please, 
to Matthew chapter 5. Turn with me quickly. Yet when we hear this in regards to Jesus in our life, these verses I'm about ready to read to you, we think Matthew chapter 5 tells us all these laws, the Beatitudes, all these things that Jesus wants us to do. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 48, tell us not to lust, because if we lust, it's like committing adultery. Not to lose our tempers, because if we curse out one another, it's like the sin of murder. Not to break our word, because we shouldn't be unreliable. We should be kind, gentle. It, it gives us all of these commands. Now go to verse 48, after they're all done, he's teaching us what he wants us to do. Now, I'm going to read this verse, and you just let me know if you think he expects you to do what he just talked about in the 47 prior verses. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is there any confusion what he expects out of us? Could he have said it any differently? He didn't say, be shady like your governor is shady. He didn't, he didn't say that. He didn't say, be like Kim Kardashian. You know, he didn't say, he said, be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Just in case you had a different definition of what moral perfection was. The moral perfection I'm talking about is your God, the father, the one, the only. Be like him. Amen. So he's very clear that these commands are to be perfectly followed. Now, what do we do? with sinners who can't keep this law and yet are responsible for keeping the law. What do we do? Think about this. With sinners who cannot keep the law yet are responsible for keeping the law. Somebody say, get born again. <laughs> See, when you realize as a sinner you can't keep the law, that in your nature, it seems like you're always working against the law. Romans chapter 7 says it like this, that the more you hear what not to do, it's the more you keep wanting to do it, right? So if I just told you a whole bunch of things not to do, don't watch the Cubs games, and don't have a hot dog today, and, and don't spend time with your kids, I mean, you're just going to be like, Pastor, you're just giving me ideas. I do want to go home. I do want to eat hot You know, so the idea in human nature, when we're told not to do something, we tend to want to do it more. But Paul said, turn with me quickly into Romans chapter 8. He talks all about this in Romans chapter 7. But in Romans chapter 8, he speaks to us very clearly that for sinners, you can be born again and now keep the law. Why? Because your nature has been changed. You're not who you used to be. You were born a sinner, inclined to sin, but you're born again a saint. Can I hear an amen? Look at chapter 8, verses 1 and onward. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. So do you know that by Jesus Christ dying on the cross, we've been set free from the power of sin. That means sin can no longer boss you around and tell you what to do. You should be clearly able to defeat sin, not because of yourself, but because of what Christ did for you. Now go on down to verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh and what it desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. 
You see, you're deciding in your mind what you will set your body to do. I'm going to say that again. You yourself are setting in your mind what your body is going to do. Everybody lift up your left hand. Everybody now put that one down. Lift up your right hand. See, that's mind control over your body. Amen? How do you give somebody the middle finger from your mind thinking wicked thoughts? How do you men look at pornography from your mind thinking lustful thoughts? Women, how do you curse and become covetous and jealous and gossipy? Out of your mind thinking wicked thoughts. How do I lose my temper and mistreat my wife? Out of a mind thinking wicked thoughts. So Jesus Christ is telling us that as the mind goes, so goes the body. But if you're born again, keep reading. Somebody say, don't end there. Come on, keep reading. It says in verse 10... Let's go to verse 9. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to Christ, and keep going, verse 10, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. So even though you may have the same body that used to sin, you don't got the same Spirit, and greater is he that's living on the inside of you than he that's living in the world you can live righteous and verse 11 and the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead will give your bodies life so that in your mortal bodies you will live because of the spirit verse 12 therefore brothers and sisters we have an obligation we're obligated to what to live according to the spirit and not the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put the death, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Verse 14, for those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. So who is the children of God? The one just walking around saying, I'm a child of God? No, those who are led by the spirit. Those who are led by the spirit. I'll go back to the introduction because we ain't even yet into the message yet. Go back to the introduction. That's not even in the notes, so I just had to give you some understanding. Praise God for a preacher. Amen. Come on. Go back to the introduction. Go back to that introduction because we right here at definitions, baby. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. God expects you to keep his word. His word will judge you. You will decide in your mind what you do with his word. You will either repent and be born again and be led by his spirit and keep his word, or you will in your mind reject his word and live by your flesh and then suffer punishment. So what are sinners supposed to do who are commanded to keep the law of God? They're commanded to be born again and led by the Spirit. Are you all tracking with me? Can I give you one more introductionary scripture? When we sin now as born-again Christians, what are we supposed to do? Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. How many got their Bible? Say amen. How many looking at the screen without your Bible say, help me, Jesus? Come on, bring your Bibles. Even if it's on an iPad or phone, bring it. You'll, you'll appreciate it. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and see it for yourself. What are we supposed to do in this life as Christians when we sin? 
Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from how much unrighteousness? From all unrighteousness. For if we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word that will judge us, it's not in us. So what do Christians do when they sin? They repent. They confess. They get cleansed from unrighteousness. So what should be the state of a Christian's life? Should a Christian's life be, I'll give you three options. A, the Christian's life is a dirty cup, and God is just going to clean that cup when it gets to heaven. So the state of a Christian's earthly life is as a dirty, rotten sinner. The only difference between them and the sinner going to hell is that they get to go to heaven, and then Jesus will give them a Holy Ghost car wash when they get up there. Option A, the Christian is still the sinner here, but he's a saved sinner. Option B, He's half a sinner and half a saint. And so there's this tug of war, this arm wrestling going on. And if he prays and fasts and if he reads his Bible more, oh, he's winning that day. But if he doesn't pray and read his Bible, oh, he's getting taken over half and half. Or C, is he supposed to be righteous and blameless, pure and holy? Which one? A? A sinner, still dirty and filthy but saved. B, half and half, and every day it's a struggle. I don't know if I'm going to heaven or hell. It just depends. Or C, righteous, holy, and blameless. It isn't, is it not in the Bible? It says, be cleansed from all unrighteousness. So what is the Christian's life like when they sin? It is like the example of a pebble in your shoe. I don't know about you, but I don't like walking with pebbles in my shoe. So the moment I feel a little bit of irritation, I get it out of my shoe to go back to a place of having no pebbles in the shoe. So the Christian who sins should be able to repent, be cleansed, and go back to a sinless state of being. The Christian should not be engaged in active sin, making excuse for their sin, and being tainted by sin. Even if they do sin, the Christian should be quick to repent, quick to confess it, and be cleansed down here and be that creation God called them to be. Am I not preaching the word? Because it says he will purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, why is that open rebuke better than hidden love? Because if you see a friend in sin, your heart should be, man, you don't have to have that. You can be totally cleansed from sin. And if I had time, I'd preach more on this. You know, the Bible says that he'll never give us more than we can handle. And specifically, that the context there is our battle against sin. I know we can use it when we lose somebody that we love and we're feeling we're going through hard times. And that scripture can be used for that. But that's not the context of that scripture, that he'll give, never give us more than we can handle. What it goes on to say is that in our times of temptation, he will always make a way of escape. And, and so, uh, you know, like Jesus prayed, Father, lead us not into temptation, but, you know, deliver us from evil. So the standard position of the Christian should always be, I want to get away from evil. I want to get away from sin. If you see me going into sin, then please let me know because that's where I, I don't want to be in sin. But how well does that work in everyday life when we show people their sin? Do they go, man, I love that. Man, thank, thank you for telling me that. 
well, you know, cursing, you know, I've been doing that a little bit, you know, over here. I've been thinking about it. But thank you for telling me not to let any unwholesome word come out of my mouth. God bless you. Do you think that's what your coworker's going to say? Can I show you that the Bible wrote? Uh, there's a proverb for that coworker for your friend. Can you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1? There might be a part two to this message because I'm still on the introduction, amen? I'm just going to park here for a little bit and we'll pray and go home. But just give me a few more minutes, amen? God knows what we need this morning, does he not? He's our God. That's all we came to worship here today, not man, not our agendas. There's a word for people like that in the Bible. We call them stupid. You want to you know what stupid means in Hebrew? It means stupid. You want to know what it means in Greek? Stupid. How do Italians say it? Stupid. Stupid. That's stupid, man. You know, we think the Bible like he would never call us that. No, he did. It's right here. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge. Whoever hates correction is stupid. There it is. Some people are like, man, I don't believe that Bible. No, you in this Bible. Yeah, really? Man, if I could show you in the Bible, would you believe the Bible? Yeah, show me I'm in the Bible right here. You're, you're that guy. You're the stupid one. You're the one that hates correction. The Bible already got your number, Jack. You ain't some new thing on the planet. Well, I'm going to try to be rebellious. No, people have already done that. Got kicked out the garden for it too. Nations have been destroyed. Amen? We know that God is a just God. So when we talk about, you know, open rebuke is better than hidden love, what that is assuming is that the person loves knowledge. Because if you're talking to somebody that doesn't love knowledge, they're stupid by definition. By definition. We're not name calling. See, when we teach our children not to call names, what we're saying is don't be rude, don't be disrespectful, don't call somebody something that is not who they are. You know, don't do that. But if the name is describing a behavior, there's nothing wrong with that. And what Jesus is doing here to the planet that he created, he's saying, guys, if you don't love discipline and you're not listening to what I'm telling you, you are acting stupid. It doesn't get any more plainer than that, does it not? Come on, somebody. So when I see somebody in sin as a brother, it is my job to show them that sin because I'm assuming they love discipline. Now, that's just not for the pastor. That's for anybody. Now, going back to put it all together, I'm not to come to you with my social preference of what the wife should wear, what the man should watch on TV, because remember, there's no word for that. I can tell you as a parent, I can say, no, I, I don't watch uh, whatever this thing about the vampires. What's that called? No, the Walking Dead. We got some pastors here watching that. Pray for them. Twilight, thank you. Walking Dead might get some people offended real quick. That's okay. I'll step on toes. I don't care. Just don't hurt me. Watch right here. Twilight. Now, I can show you in the Bible where it says to practice witchcraft is a sin. I can show you that, right? I can go to the Bible and I can say if you practice witchcraft, it's a sin. But can I tell you a place in the Bible where watching a movie about witchcraft is a sin? As much as I don't feel comfortable with it, I can't show you that scripture. So I don't have a word to rebuke you with. I don't have a word to share that with you. I can simply tell you like this. 
As I look at that, it makes me feel uncomfortable with Harry Potter and other things because it seems to promote to our children witchcraft. And if this would cause my children to sin, as the Bible says, if anything in that matter was to cause my children to sin, it would be best for it to be cut off. So I can say that, can I not? But now you may say to yourself, Joe, you like Lord of the Rings. You, you like C.S. Lewis, uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. And, and there's some scenes in there where they do magic. But I'll be like, but, you know, those authors are Christian. They don't mean it like Harry Potter. That's like the good kind of magic. And then it sounds even worse, you know. It's like good kind of magic. Well, white witch. Like what are we talking about here now? I mean, we're good seances. See, I, see, what happened is I became a hypocrite. Because my definition isn't in the Bible, so by definition, I'm always going to be a hypocrite because I'm not doing what is true. If I believe moral standards are true in the Bible, if I try to create other moral standards, then by definition, I'm a hypocrite. But, but a hypocrite is not someone who says, I affirm this, but sometimes I fail at it, but yet I still affirm it. You understand? That's not a hypocrite. That, that's a good thing. So let me give you an example. When, when I say... Uh, sir, I, I heard you talk to your wife the other day in the lobby, and, and uh, man, it grieved my heart, sir, because I heard you raising your voice and yelling at your wife. I, I don't think you should do that. I'm doing that because I love him, right? It's an open rebuke, and I can show him in the Bible where the, where the Bible says, uh, you know, uh, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, James chapter 1, because the anger of man never fulfills the righteousness of God. Now, that man could point at me and go, well, man, you're a sinner just like me, but hold on. Any time that I've gotten angry with my wife, I've repented of because I'm not a hypocrite. I acknowledge that standard, and if I fall short of that standard, I repent too. So let's go back to you now. Because you see, that's, a, that's like a defense they like to do. What they like to do is become the teacher of the teacher, to teach the teacher, and they like to become spec inspectors. Because the Bible says one man's walking around with a log in his eye, and another one has a speck in their eye, and the one with the speck is trying to get the guy's log out. And like, man, I got to get that log out, you got this big problem. And they're like, no, I ain't going to let you do it, because you got a speck in yours. And the Bible talks about that is foolishness, that is stupidity, because if only people who were perfect 24-7 could teach other people to follow God's commands, we might as well just set down the mic and wait for Angel Gabriel to flap his little self here, because there ain't nobody preaching to you, sister. There ain't nobody going to preach to you, brother. So the best we can do according to this standard is righteous people, forgiven of sin, cleansed in holiness, helping other people through the word of God walk holy and be cleansed of sin. And if you don't like it, you're stupid. And don't be stupid. And like the great theologian Mr. T said, he pities the fool. If that great theologian can teach you something today, don't Get on Mr. T's bad side. By the way, they did interviews with him, Christian. And that's where he came up with that, was from the Bible. I don't know his walk with the Lord, but that just blows me away that we all know that. And yet it comes from Proverbs. Do we see examples of this in the Bible quickly now in closing? And then we'll take this up next week. Yes, Jesus rebuked Peter. Called him Satan. Remember that? If you want to talk about an open rebuke, ouch, that kind of hurts. Like Jesus didn't just say, Peter, hey, man, I think you got this one wrong. He's like, Satan? Who, me? Yes, you, Peter, Satan. 
Could you just imagine that? Josh, would you just stand up? And then we're just going to do some illustration. If it scars you, we'll talk about it later. Could, could you just imagine me going, Satan? <laughs> go ahead. Go be seated. Thank you. I, I couldn't go through with it. I'm already offending family members back there. She's like, no, his sister going to get on. But, man, you, he didn't get called like a bad guy. Like, man, you need to work on that, Peter. He's like, Satan, get behind me. But what did Peter do? He was like, okay, yes, Lord. Because Peter wasn't listening, right? And then poor Peter, he gets rebuked again by Paul. That's another example in the Bible. Peter was hard to learn. It kind of reminds me of me. It's like everybody took a turn rebuking Peter. Jesus rebuked Peter. The little girl at the fire rebuked Peter. Paul rebuked Peter. It's like poor guy get rebuked all the time. And, and, and in Galatians chapter 2, it says, why Paul rebuked Peter? He saw Peter eating with the Jews. And then when the non-Jewish people would come, or rather, excuse me, he saw Peter eating with the non-Jewish people, and then when the Jewish people would come, he would go switch tables. And Peter goes, man, you're a hypocrite. Why are you treating these people different? Why are you ashamed? He got rebuked. And then Paul rebuked the churches all the time. He rebuked Galatians. He said, you are bewitched. What happened to you? It, it, it literally says that a spell has come from Satan and made you dumb. Because you couldn't have been this dumb on your own. That's what he literally says. He says, you are bewitched by the devil. What happened to you? That's Because Paul was talking like Jesus, was he not? He was talking like Jesus. And then Jesus, you know, because Jesus called people snakes and vipers and all sons of the devil and all of this. And then Jesus, at the end of the book, because a lot of times people just think, you know, Jesus walked around telling people how awesome they were. Like he was the guy from Reading Rainbow and Ca Captain Kangaroo. And, and what was the, the Bozo, what was the clown from here? Was he Bozo, the guy who did the little tossing game? I remember watching that WGN. Like we just think like Jesus was like a mixture of Reading Rainbow, Captain Kangaroo, and Bozo the clown. And party, of course, like all wrapped up in one just shiny, nice person. But the last book of the Bible does not show me Captain Kangaroo. He is not coming to make spiritual fantasies come true. Jesus is not here saying, let's, let's, take a, let's take a trip on the spiritual treasure chest, you know, journey here. Let's just go deep and, you know, talk about how awesome life is. He rebukes five out of the seven churches. Listen to those rebukes. He says, to Ephesus, you lost your first love. To Pergam, you gave up Christianity for idolatry, sexual immorality, and heresy. To Thyatira, you've allowed a false prophet named Jezebel to lead you to sexual sin and believe things that aren't true. Sardis had become dead in their faith, though they looked like they were alive and weren't even finishing their original good works. And then lastly, Laodicea, he said, had become so prideful and self-deceived that they were now lukewarm, and he was about ready to spit them out of his mouth. But yet, he loves them. Why? Because the open rebuke is better than hidden love. The wounds of a friend can be trusted better than the kisses of an enemy. Can you stand to your feet and give God some praise if you received his word? Amen. Band, would you come, please? I want to encourage you today, because I'm going to preach this next week. We'll have Adam preach, uh, preach the last Sunday of the month. I want to encourage you to be open to God's rebukes. There are four different ways the Lord can rebuke you in life. Private devotions, when you're praying and spending time with the Lord, he'll say, you need to change that. Number two, he can 
confront your life through gospel preaching. When you're in a service like this and people are preaching his word, you can hear his word and it will, it will dig down deep and you'll know it's God. It wasn't a preacher judging you or, or somebody getting nosy into your business. It was God's word through the preaching. Number three, elders and deacons. The Bible says that there are supposed to be trusted leaders in the church that we know are being held accountable to that standard of wisdom and knowledge that they then can go to others and share it. And I thank God that we have a good church with elders and deacons. And then lastly, fellow disciples. Just look at your neighbor and say, somebody like you. Look at your other neighbor and say, you can rebuke me if you see me in sin. Show me in the word. I may get offended at first. Come on, look at your neighbor and say, I may get offended at first. I may block you on Facebook for a while. But eventually, I'll listen by God's grace. Amen? So, so there's four different ways there that rebukes can come into our lives. If you're wise, you'll love it. If I could actually show you today a cure for a disease you have, would you, would you be happy? If I actually today could show you a way to make a million dollars and it be legit, would you want me to show you? If I could actually today spare you the hardship of life and the judgment of God would you want me to show you that's discipleship that's what the Bible is talking about and so this week let us pray and be open to God's word others speaking that word that we would be receptive to the corrections and if we get wounded and our feelings get hurt it may happen, right? We may get our feelings hurt. We wouldn't quit on that friendship. We wouldn't quit on that church. We wouldn't quit on that relationship because we know that if they're coming from a good place in the Word of God, they can be trusted. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for this service. I ask, Lord, that you bless us right now with wisdom to receive your Word. Whatever you may tell us to do, may we do it. Would you just close your eyes, raise your hands as a sign of surrender, and say, Lord, test my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. Come on, as the band plays, ask the Lord to rebuke or correct any sin in your life, as I do right now. Come on, he can do it privately right now. Altar workers, would you come, please? We're about ready to close. But I want you to let God speak to you first before we do. Is there any wicked way in me, Jesus? Any things that I need to make right with you? As they come to your heart, just repent of them. Confess them as the Bible says. And He will make you clean, pure from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse you. Come on, a few moments. God, show us our hearts. Show us who we are, God. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Anything that doesn't please you, that's clearly said in your word from lying, from coveting, from perversion, from greed, from blasphemy, from rebellion. Oh God, cleanse us from these things. Self-righteousness. Cleanse us, Father. Oh, God, a few more moments. The word is sanctified. What it means is he's cleansing you, restoring you to that place of righteousness. No one has to leave out of here the way they came. Hallelujah. 
Come on, and some of you who have already prayed a cleansing prayer, would you just now thank Him and say, Lord, I thank You for cleansing me in righteousness. I believe, oh, hallelujah, that what You've done in me, You're going to complete. What You've started, You're going to finish. I believe greater is He that's in me than He that's in the world. Hallelujah, hallelujah, I believe it. I believe the righteousness of Christ clothes me as a robe today. The Father doesn't see my sin. He sees the blood and righteousness of Jesus. Hallelujah. I set my mind on the things of God. For as my mind goes, my body goes, I think on pure things. I think on noteworthy things, honorable things, wholesome things, godly things. I will be all that He called me to be. I will be what he called me to be. Hallelujah. I am what he said I am. Woo! Hallelujah. There is no one like our God. The power of transformation is here, friends. Yes, yes, God. Hallelujah. Woo! The power of transformation is here. As we close out, would you just hold somebody's hand? And I just want you to look at me as we get ready to close out. We have altar workers that will pray with you. We're going to keep worshiping. If you need to confess those sins up here, we'll pray with you to do that. If you need healing, if you need a touch from God, we're right here as we dismiss. But if you could look at me in closing, please. There was just a word as I was praying that came into my heart. Jesus just said it so simple. The power of transformation is here. Whoever wants to be transformed, you can be transformed right now. The power of transformation is here. Thank you, Lord. Father, as we're holding each other's hands, we come in agreement that every person here will live for you, please you. Be open to your rebukes and wounds, though it hurts our feeling because, God, you care about us. May we live it out this week. Help others to live it in Jesus' name. Can everybody say amen and bless the Lord one more time? Amen. Hallelujah. You're dismissed. We'll see you at life groups. If you need prayer or want to worship, come on up with us. God bless you. Thank you for coming. For from you are all things, and to you are all things, you deserve the glory. You worthy, you worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. And for from you are all to you are our peace, you deserve the glory. You are worthy, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. And far from you are our the glory you worthy of it all you worthy